All right, tonight we continue a, a series talking about grace, especially about what the Bible teaches about grace and some of its, what I'm calling its sharper edges, uh, those aspects of the teaching about grace that are not uh, often talked about, but yet I think are very central to understanding the whole gospel. Uh, they've often been summarized with the acrostic tulip, which helps you remember what they are. They're all about how the grace of God is sovereign. It's not an ineffectual wish that God has, but a sovereign, determined purpose to save people. And so T, the total depravity, told us why we need God's grace to be sovereign. U, unconditional election, told us how God conceived of so sovereign grace. And today we're going to pick up the L, or limited atonement, how the sovereign grace of God was achieved by Christ on the cross. All right? Now, everybody, if you ask them, would know the answer to this, that Christianity depends on the cross, right? Almost everyone would tell you that. E even people who aren't Christians would see a cross, and immediately they would think Christianity. It has to do with a church or Jesus or the Bible or something like that because they associate rightly our faith and the Bible with what Jesus did that day on the cross, uh, that is true. However, the way in which we speak about the cross matters tremendously. Uh, and the reason why it matters is the Bible itself is very careful about the way it speaks about the cross. Uh, sometimes we don't pay attention to the details of the Bible's teaching on the cross. But I want to tell you, just knowing that the cross happened is not enough. You've got to know why it happened you got to know what God was accomplishing through it and what actually was accomplished and how you and I can get a part of what was accomplished at the cross. And you got to know all those things. In other words, the doctrine about the cross sheds light on the fact of the cross. Uh, very few people actually would deny that Jesus died on a cross. Even... You know, some of my professors at Florida State, professors of Bible who were very, very skeptical about everything related to the Bible, still believed that there really was a man named Jesus, and he really was crucified on a Roman cross. What makes them different than us tonight? We understand the doctrine of the Bible about why the cross took place and what the cross achieved. Uh, Y'all know the name Billy Graham, of course. Uh, he was a truly famous and justifiably famous preacher in the last century. Uh, he went around the world doing these big crusades, evangelistic crusades. And during the late 1950s, his name was becoming so popular that he was invited to England to do a crusade. He did one at Wembley Stadium. and Actually, many people in England, including the late queen herself, traced their conversion back to those Billy Graham crusades during the 1950s. I don't know if y'all knew that, but the queen was known to talk about that, how the gospel through Billy Graham uh, ministered to her heart. Pretty amazing. Well, while he was there, uh, the faculty at Oxford University, or at least some of them, invited him to come speak to the student body. And um, that, that, just think about that for a minute. Oxford University. What do you think about when you think about Oxford University? way up there. I think about yeah, the dictionary that they produce, the Oxford Dictionary. I think about the comma that I love, the Oxford comma. And I'm on that team. That's, a, that's an English teacher joke, but 
Lots of things we think about. Oxford is an important center of learning. Well, it probably won't surprise you that many of the faculty members and students were offended that Billy Graham was asked to speak. Because Billy Graham was not, I mean, he was a lot of things, but he was not, you know, an intellectual, at least not as they judged it. He did not have this giant education at these world-class institutions. Now, he was a well-read man, of course, but he was not what they wanted him to be. And so Billy Graham went anyway, even though there was a division in the student body and in the faculty. But he kind of freaked himself out. This is a famous story. Billy Graham, for the first night of his talks, started trying to speak as if he was one of them. And he, he did all this studying and planning. He started quoting philosophers like Nietzsche and Kierkegaard. And he was like bringing out all that he knew to try to impress the Oxford students and teachers. And yet, you know, unsurprisingly, they weren't all that impressed. And everything kind of went over pretty dry. Uh, one of his dear friends, who happened to be another evangelical believer, said to him, Billy, you ought to just on the second night talk about what you always talk about. Forget all that Nietzsche stuff and all that Kierkegaard stuff. No one cares. Just talk about why, you know, people are coming to hear you. Talk about those things that are dear to your heart. The, the second night, they said, there was so much blood flowing out of the pulpit or the lectern that night that it was basically flowing down the aisle, uh, meaning all Billy Graham talked about was the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, in this center of learning. Now, of course, that freaked them out, but it also hardly left a dry eye in the building. And I've read numerous people who were there at that meeting who also became Christians from Oxford University through his talk about the blood. It wasn't his Kierkegaard talk that brought them to Christ. It was just simply the blood of Jesus. Now, why is that? Uh, it does not sound very educated to just talk about blood, 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 power in the blood. But why is it so powerful? Here's my answer. Because at the cross, through the blood of Jesus, God made a full atonement for his people. Not a partial, not a good idea for you to go think about and feel warm and fuzzy, but a real atonement, a real change took place between God and sinners at the cross of Jesus. And when people hear about it and they have the faith to hear about it, it changes and transforms their lives. There is truly power in that blood, if you'll understand it right. Well, Jesus in John chapter 10 is doing what Billy Graham did. He's talking about the blood. He's talking about how he, the shepherd of the sheep, is going to lay down his life for those sheep. And by laying down his life for them, he is going to actually save them, not partially, but actually and fully save them so that they will have eternal life and never perish again. Y'all want to hear more about it? All right, look at your bulletin. There are three things. Jesus makes these three points, and as we talk about them, I also am going to take you on a Bible tour a few times tonight. So it'd be good to have your Bible and be ready, like sword drill time. We're going to go through quite a few verses. I don't normally do it this way, but I think it'd be helpful for you to see the preponderance of ways that the Bible speaks about the cross. All right, so here's the three things. The intention of the cross, 
What did God intend the cross to do? Secondly, Jesus speaks about the effect of the cross. What did it accomplish? And then lastly, he speaks about the people of the cross. Or he describes those people for whom he died. All right, so let's look first of all at the intention of the cross of Jesus in God's own plan. Uh, Well, Jesus says it very clearly. If you'll look there at verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, look down at the rest of those verses. Just kind of skim them. Because Jesus laid down his life for the sheep, what then happens in the lives of those sheep? What, what is the intended effect or the intended result of Christ dying for the sheep? What are some of the things it says? What's that? They will know me, right? Because I die for them, they will know me. That was my intention, Jesus says. I want them to know me. What else? They will know the Father. I die for them, therefore they know my Father. What else? I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. I die for them, therefore they receive eternal life, therefore they will never perish, therefore no one can snatch them from my hand. You see this? Jesus is saying... That his mission in the world was he was sent as a shepherd for God's sheep. And that by laying down his life, God intended that those sheep would actually be saved now and forever. Jesus was not sent to die merely. Now listen, this is where we start to get controversial, but it's important. Jesus did not merely die in order to make all people savable. Jesus died to actually save the people who are saved. That's my controversial point, but it's, a, but it's one that I think Jesus is clearly speaking of. Uh, the, the, the fad or the new kind of, I call it new, although it's probably over a couple hundred years old, but new in relationship to the Bible idea that the death of Christ only rendered us all savable if we'll cooperate with Jesus and then you'll be saved is actually not found in the Bible anywhere. Not one time. And I'll hopefully show you by my massive amount of verses that I'm about to lay on you. <laughs> the Bible never speaks that way. Uh, in fact, it's offensive to Jesus to speak that way, in my opinion. Because what you're saying is, Jesus, you died so that I can save myself. By some action of mine, by some decision of mine, whatever you want to call it, doesn't really matter what you call it, it's you saving yourself. Jesus just died to make you able to save yourself. That's offensive when Jesus says stuff like this I lay down my life for my sheep, and they will never perish. What that means is those who do, in fact, perish, Christ did not die an atoning death for them, or else they would have been atoned for. Because if Christ dies for you, you are saved. That was the intention of God in eternity. All right? Now, stay with me. I know I just said three or four things that are very controversial. But hang with me, all right? Uh, Notice also in the passage that the Father, God the Father, is fully at one with Jesus in this intention. Jesus came to lay down his life for the sheep so that they would be saved. 
And the Father has the exact same goal in mind. Where do you see that? Verse, which one? 30. 30. I and the Father are one. There is no daylight between me and the Father. What I came to do, God sent me to do. What I did, God wanted me to do. Uh, you can also find that there in verse 17. The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. This charge, verse 18, I have received from my Father. Verse 15, what does that say, Ben? That's right. I lay down my life for the sheep, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and God the Father and the Holy Spirit have the same intention in the death of Jesus. That sinners, like me and you, would actually be saved because our sins are actually atoned for at the cross. Nothing else has to be done to save us because Jesus paid it all. Okay, that's the idea, the intention of the cross. Now, if you want to know a little bit more about this, here's where I'm going to lay on some more verses. Uh, you know, of course, Luke 19.10. You probably don't know it by the reference. That's okay, but you know, you'll know it when I say it. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, notice how he says it. Not the Son of Man came so that the lost might seek and save themselves. He doesn't say the Son of Man came that the lost might be halfway saved and they meet God halfway. He says the Son of Man came that the lost might be saved, period, right? Uh, Matthew 1.21, this was the Christmas announcement to Joseph. Name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not name him Jesus because he's going to make everybody savable if they'll cooperate. The angel didn't say that. And I think it matters that he didn't say that, okay? If the angel didn't say it, we shouldn't talk that way because it diminishes the value of the cross to say it that way. Jesus came to save his people, actually save his people from their sins. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.15, if somebody's quick on the draw there. 1 Timothy 1.15, somebody read it when you got it. I know this might not be good for the recording or people, but yeah. That's Paul. Christ came to save sinners. Now again, not make them savable, make it possible for them to save themselves. Christ came to save sinners, and I'm the chiefest of them. Uh, Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. How fast can you be, right? Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore, somebody had it, sorry. Yep. Notice the words there. What did he do through his death? destroyed death. Who does he deliver from slavery to death? All those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery to it. Right? The intention of Jesus was to actually deliver 
by actually destroying death, not simply you know, making people you know, into a savable state. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Uh, if you're writing these down, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, this is the famous one where it says, Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is his bride, and he laid down his life for the bride. Why? Somebody read it. So that she may be holy and without blemish. Not, note, not so that she might, by her own decisions and effort, make herself holy and without blemish. No, he died for her that she might be holy and without blemish. The, the, I want you to see this. In, in the plan of God, the cross achieves its effect. It achieves its goal. It, it does not simply make the goal possible for us to attain. It, it makes it real. Right? That's all we're, we're seeing right now. Uh, John 17, 19. I told you this was an avalanche of verses. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is Jesus. For their sake I consecrate myself that they might be sanctified. Okay, not I consecrate myself in hopes that someone somewhere might want to be sanctified and make themselves sanctified. No, I set myself apart on the cross that they would actually be sanctified which is what in the plan of God will happen for his people. Uh, Galatians 1.4. Jesus gave himself for our sins to what? Deliver us from this present evil age. In other words, if Jesus gave himself for your sins, he has delivered you from this present evil age. All right? This is the way the Bible universally talks about the cross. The thing was done by Jesus. The effect was achieved. God and his plan had this intention, and he accomplished the intention through Christ. The cross is not a loss for God. In fact, the cross was never in jeopardy. God took no risks on the cross for the simple fact that God can't take a risk. The word risk and the word God don't go together because God is, does all his holy will and cannot be thwarted in anything that he seeks to do. Last one for this section, 2 Corinthians 5.21, my favorite. No pressure to the one who reads it, but I love this one. Right. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on the cross. He, he put our sins on Jesus on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. Again, not that we might work our way to heaven now that we have God's help because he gave us help on the cross. No, he actually makes us righteous through the death of Jesus on the cross. Uh, again, God has a lot to say about his intention Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when it comes to the death of Jesus on the cross, which is what makes us as Christians different than anybody else who believes that, yes, the fact is Jesus died on a Roman cross. You see, this is what makes the difference. 
we believe God had an intention in that death. He had planned that death. In fact, he had been planning it from before there was time. Uh, you know, the Bible says he predetermined it, he foreknew it, he predestined it, that Christ would die on the cross at that certain time, so that God's intended result from that death might actually be accomplished. That's the universal way the scriptures speak. Uh, someone who's not a believer in Jesus will look at the cross and think, okay, here's another example of the Roman Empire overreaching uh, a Jewish rabbi who is a victim of Roman oppression. And, and yeah, that's true. That was actually what happened. But we want to see the cross more deeply. We want to see it according to the doctrine that the scripture teaches about the cross, which is that God planned it to save his people from their sins. Uh, have, you, have you ever seen the old, this is an old way of sharing your faith, which I highly recommend because it puts the gospel in a good picture. On the one side, there's a cliff that has God on it. On the other side, a cliff with us on it. And then there's this big gulf of sin in between. Was this Campus Crusade for Christ that did this? Is that what it was from? I think there may have been the original ones who drew it like, like that. And then there was a bridge laid down by God. Remember what the bridge was? The cross, boom. Now notice, the cross didn't go halfway across the gulf. In fact, there, there are some things that, if they're partially done, are fully worthless. And a bridge is one of those. If it's partially done, it's fully worthless, you see. It, it is actually very offensive to think about the cross of Jesus Christ as partially done and therefore fully worthless. Here's what I mean. If Jesus only died to make me savable, and now it depends on me to enact my part to save myself, how, how much should I have confidence in myself that I'm going to be able to keep my part? No, it's another case of the partial is fully worthless in that case. The cross goes all the way across the gulf. One side to one side. Alex? If I was had part in that sin, potentially I could boast also. Exactly. Yeah, I could say, hey, you know, did you see how I jumped from the end of that cross all the way to the other side? I jumped better than you did. I jumped faster, I jumped farther, I, you know. We could get into all that kind of stuff. And sadly, we do sometimes as Christians get into that kind of stuff where the church becomes a who is you know, more holy or spiritual than the next person, rather than all of us being humble for, before the cross, that if God had not laid down the cross from one end to the other, not a single person would be saved. But since God has laid down that cross, intending that all his people be saved, all his people will be saved. There's no way they could not be saved. Right? Uh, this is why we call it limited atonement. Now, I, I don't like the word limited because the word limited suggests we're trying to somehow limit the value of what Christ did on the cross. It's actually the opposite. We're trying to show how unlimited the value of the cross is by saying that there are some people who will not be saved who cannot claim to have been atoned for in the same way that those who are saved have been atoned for by Jesus' death. Does that make sense? If your sins have not been atoned for and you're going to pay for them one day, that means Jesus did not atone for them. I mean, how could it be? 
how could it be that Hitler, now we're assuming, of course, Hitler didn't make it to heaven. We don't know for sure, but that's an assumption. How could it be that Hitler could say, Christ died for me, in the same way that a saint in heaven could say, Christ died for me? Does that even make sense? Because he, if he's not in heaven, is paying for his sins as we speak and will be forever. If Christ paid for them, how can God then make Hitler pay for them? But oh, if Christ did pay for them, how could it be that he would ever be in hell or that any, any of those would ever be in hell who have received the grace of God through the death of Jesus? Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. In my place condemned he stood, meaning I do not have to stand condemned in my own place anymore. Because he stood condemned in my place, setting me free forever. The intention of the cross. Let's look secondly at the effect of the cross. This one will be quick because it's sort of the same thing. But I want you to just notice in chapter 10 there how Jesus makes it clear that what God intended will actually and has actually been accomplished through his death. Do you notice all the must and will and shall language that Jesus uses? Which ones of those do you see? Yes, it's a matter of fact, right? Uh, it's not, I can know them, they can know me, it's I know them and they know me. Um, verse 16 is another one. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. In other words, there are sheep that I have that are not yet in the community. They're not yet believing. I must go. Listen, I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And the reason why is because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And this charge I have received from my father. Skipping down again to verse um, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my father's hand. The father who is, has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. This is emphatic language. Which describes an accomplishment through the death of Jesus. Not a possibility, but a reality of what Christ has accomplished and brought into the lives of his people through his death. Uh, reading this, there is no conceivable way, according to Jesus, that a single sheep for whom he died will ever be lost. That's good news. I don't know if you're hearing that, but that's good news. Every sheep for whom he dies will be brought in in one flock under one shepherd and no one will ever be able to snatch them out of his hand. This is why the atonement is best understood flanked by unconditional election on the one side and irresistible grace on the other. That's what helps you understand the cross. Uh, apart from that, then you, you might end up thinking of the cross in some fairly weak terms. As if, again, it was some way of making people save a bull. Let's read a little bit of J.I. Packer. Remember this? 
It's the best book about this topic is by John Owen called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Don't you love that title? The greatest book ever written about the cross besides the Bible, in my opinion. And J.I. Packer wrote an introduction, which I've been reading to you from. And he says this, uh, We want rightly to proclaim Christ as Savior, yet sometimes we end up saying that Christ, having made salvation possible, has left us to become our own saviors. It comes about in this way. We want to magnify the saving grace of God and the saving power of Christ. So we declare that God's redeeming love extends to every man and that Christ has died to save every man. And we proclaim that the glory of divine mercy is to be measured by these facts. And then in order to avoid universalism, because no Christian believes that every single person will in fact be saved, we then have to depreciate all that we were previously lifting up and to explain that after all, Nothing that God and Christ have done can save us unless we add something of our own to it. The decisive factor, factor which actually saves us is in our own believing. What we say comes to this, that Christ saves us with our help. And what that means when one thinks it out is this, that we save ourselves with Christ's help. And this is a hollow anticlimax, if there ever was one. Uh, but if we start by affirming that God has a saving love for all and Christ died a saving death for all alike, and yet balk at becoming universalist, there's really nothing else that we can say. Or to put it as Charles Spurgeon put it, we are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or else all men would be saved. Now our reply to this is that on the other hand, our opponents are the ones that limit it. We don't. The Arminians, or those who don't believe this, say, Christ died for all men. And then ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? And they said, no, of course not. And so we ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to, cure, to secure the salvation of any man in particular? And they then answer, no. They are obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if... And then they follow certain conditions of salvation. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? They do. They say that Christ did not die so as infallibly to secure the salvation of anybody. Well, we beg your pardon. When we say <laughs> that you are the one to limit Christ's death. Because we say that Christ so died. Listen to this. Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You can keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of yours. <laughs> Amen. The Bible says Jesus' death saves men and women. Not that it renders men and women equally savable so as that they can then add their bit to it in order to be saved. Now let me give you another quick avalanche of verses um, after that. Uh, the main one that I think is going to be of interest to you is Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. If somebody would get there and read it, we can see clearly what uh, we just heard from Charles Spurgeon. Revelation nine, or 5, 9 through 10.
were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Very good. What did he do by his blood? Why is the lamb to be praised forever and ever? Because he ransomed a people from God for God from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. By his death, he gathered his sheep from all of humanity. A multitude that no man can number, he gathered God's people to himself. Uh, let's go to another one. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 to 14. Right, when Christ took his blood and brought it up to heaven at the ascension, what does it say he secured? Eternal redemption. Wow. First Peter two twenty four. I'm hearing less pages, Russell. Y'all uh, y'all uh, dropping out of the race? Think of that. That he might bring us to God. The death of Christ actually brings people to God. And the wounds of Christ actually heal people. Wow. The effect of the cross of Christ. Amazing. Romans 8. I love this one. 8, 33 to 34. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Yeah, who can bring any charge against God's chosen ones, against God's elect? Who can do it? Because Christ died for them. Who can charge them now? You see what just happened there? Christ died, and therefore the charges are... Erased. And no one in heaven or on earth or above the earth or anywhere else could ever bring those charges back to a true Christian. Because Christ died to discharge all of the charges that stood against us justly. All right? Very important. Jesus speaks this way about his death. I die for them so that I must bring them in, so that they will listen to my voice, so that there will be one flock and one shepherd, and I will take it up again, and they will follow me, and I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let's talk about Jesus the way he talks about himself. You know, let's don't think that the free offer of the gospel, which I believe in, I believe we should offer the gospel to everything that breathes, by the way. And I hope if you know me, you know I try to do that. 
I want to show Jesus to every single person that I come into contact with, and I want to invite them to Christ. Absolutely. But I don't think to do that, we have to then change the cross by saying, you know, it's equally for you as for him, as for him, and a believer and an unbeliever, there's no difference. Christ died equally for everybody, which then renders the cross to be half as effective or a quarter as effective because in the final analysis, if Christ died for Hitler and for, you know, the Apostle John in the same exact way, that means the death of Christ failed in one case and succeeded in the other. Why? Because John was better than Hitler. I like this better. Christ died for John. Christ gave to Hitler the punishment that his sins deserved. Praise be his glorious grace. And praise be his glorious justice. And you ask me, well, why did he choose John and not Hitler? I don't know. You're going to have to ask God that one, right? Because only God knows the answers to those kind of questions. But I know this, don't make the cross less for the sake of a Hitler, okay? Just let it hang out there that when Jesus dies for someone, it actually saves them. From one point to the other, the bridge goes all the way across in actual reality. Now, this is also the faith that you hear the apostles say about themselves, uh, they don't say, hey, i got to tell you the gospel. Listen to this. Here's the gospel. I, I was a sinner. Christ died so that I might have the chance to freely believe on my own accord. And I freely believed on my own accord. My free will came through. And I'm a Christian. Praise my free will. Have you ever heard Paul preach that? No. Only in the last 200 years has anybody thought of being that crass about it. Right? It's not that way. What they said is this. I heard Christ offered. I heard Christ say to me, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. I came to Jesus, and now I've discovered it. He died for me, and my sins are paid for. That's the way the gospel is supposed to work. You offer Christ, who will not cast out anyone who comes to him. And by the way, I believe that 100%. Nobody who comes to him in faith will ever be cast out. Right, But your conclusion that Christ died for you to atone for all your sins can only come after you believe. Because how does it even make sense for it to come before you believe? Right? Um, in our zeal to make the gospel sound better, we should not actually end up making it sound worse. Right? Which we, I, know, I know that's the motive. We want to make it sound better. So we say to everybody, Jesus died for you so that all you have to do now is believe and you'll be saved. Well, no, you believe in Jesus because he's Jesus, and he, you owe him your belief. He's God, and he has said to all sinners, if you come to me, I will treat you well. I will not cast you out, and then when you come to him in faith, then you'll discover in the Bible he died for you, and that your sins are no longer going to be held against you, and it's going to grow your assurance in an incredible and amazing way, and so look at the last thing, the people of the cross, and we'll, we'll look at this really quick. Jesus describes the people for whom he died in several ways in this passage. Do you know, did you notice them? How does he describe them? My sheep. My sheep. Those given to me by the Father. That's speaking about election. God gave them to me to save them. Those that he knows and those that know him, 
those for whom he cares, those who listen to his voice, those who believe, those who hear God's voice, and those who follow him. Notice how at the end of the passage, in verse 26, he tells some of the Jewish leaders who had rejected him that they do not believe in, in him because they are not among his sheep. This is in the same passage where he says, it's the sheep that I love, the sheep who were given to me and the sheep for whom I lay down my life and not a single one of my sheep will perish. And then he turns to someone and says, you don't believe because you're not one of my sheep. Now let me tell you, you don't have to agree with me with everything, but you've got to do something with that if you want to be a consistent student of Jesus. You can't try to make Jesus more great or grand in your eyes than he is. Just let Jesus be Jesus. Jesus says God is just and God is merciful. And in his mercy, God has decided to save a multitude of the human race that did not deserve it. The rest he is going to leave to what they deserve. It's going to be perfect justice. But to the multitude that no man can number, he is going to save them. And he sent Christ into the world to die that they might actually be saved. And there's no way that they can be anything but saved. Let Jesus say that in the church. Let Jesus say that in the world again. Let the gospel ring out for what it really is rather than simply trying to make the gospel some kind of deal that God strikes for us where he goes 75% of the way and we go 25% of the way. Instead say, Christ went all the way. Now come to Christ. Why should I come to Christ? You're a human being and he made you. Come to him. He will judge you. And if you don't come to him, you will receive the full force of his justice against your sin which you have wickedly committed against him. But he died for sinners, and he promises that if you come to him and turn from your sin, he will receive you and forgive all your trespasses. That's how you preach the gospel. You know, you don't say, God did all he could do, and now he's just waiting on people to come to him. What? When has God ever done that? Just waited on people. God is God. He waits on no one. He does what he wants to do in heaven and in earth. And that's our hope. God does all that he pleases. Blessed be his name. Amen. we got to remember that. It's a weak and, and, and minimized view of God that would picture him wringing his hands in heaven just hoping somebody. I mean, think about that. If that's true, that means this. Christ could have died and no one was saved. I mean, technically that could be true on that logic. Because Jesus could have died, left it all to us, and none of us went. None of us accepted it. The death of the Son of God could have actually been a waste. Can you imagine such a thing? That God would give his Son for what could potentially be a waste? I don't ever see the Bible talking like that. And I would be very careful to talk like that because it is beneath the dignity and the majesty of the sovereign and mighty God who never takes a risk, never wastes a thing, 
but always, always achieves his most holy will. The cross of Jesus Christ is the most glorious and beautiful thing that has ever been done on this earth. God in human form died. God in human form sank under the weight of damnation. For us. Wow. There's been no other holier moment in the history of the world than that moment where the love of God and the sin of man were tried in that dread act of the cross. And what the Bible teaches about it from cover to cover is in that match between the love of God and the sin of man, the love of God won. And it lost not one of those on whom he had set his love. As Spurgeon says, there is no way they could hazard the possibility of not being saved because Christ died for them. Amen.